I think I can wrap up Prince Caspian pretty quickly. So, we're in chapters 13, 14, and 15. You notice that chapter, chapter 13 is entitled, um, The High King in Command. Of course, that High King is who? Peter, Peter is the High King. So, we left, we left off last week uh, with uh, the killing of Nicobrick and some of his cohorts. Uh, the killing of some of the evil that had infiltrated uh, the new Narnians. So now Peter and Edmund and Trumpkin are with the new Narnians, and um, they are encountering the army of Miraz. So what you see in this chapter is, and Aslan's not there yet, right? They're still waiting for Aslan. They're still waiting for Aslan with uh, Lucy and Susan to show up, and he is going to return. Uh, but in the meantime, in this chapter, uh, you, you will see that they make the decision, Peter makes the decision, to um, encounter Miraz in one-on-one combat. Um, that was done in the ancient world. You know that from the Bible, right? Shake your head, yes. Uh, David and Goliath. David and Goliath. That was done in the ancient world. Sometimes before the two, the two nations would enter into warfare, leaders from the two nations would enter into warfare. So uh, that's what's going to happen here. So you're going to have uh, hand-to-hand combat between the usurper, the Telmarine usurper, Miraz, and the new high king, Peter, one of the four Pavinci children. Um, now, one of the interesting things going on here that, again, has deep spiritual ramifications, you've got two lords serving under Miraz. Uh, you've got Glozel and you've got Sopispian uh, serving under Miraz. And... Um, you know, when you pick your counselors, when you pick those folks who are serving under you, you need to be careful and make sure you pick not evil men to serve under you. Uh, they both want Miraz dead um, because Miraz has insulted them. Miraz hasn't treated them well. They resent Miraz's rule, so they want Miraz dead. So um, they're, they're fine with however this hand-to-hand combat turns out. And you see the hand-to-hand car- combat. They're waiting. They're 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 waiting on that that battle. You're gonna see how that turns out. They're waiting on um, Aslan to return, and and he does return. Uh, you notice there's that long, long letter that Cornelius, Doctor Cornelius, pens to send from Peter to Miraz, sort of in Shakespearean English. Again, you need to keep thinking about the Middle Ages. You need to keep thinking about King Arthur and chivalry. Um, so the plans are being made. Uh, you've got the people who are going to um, become the marshal of the list. Now, we probably don't even know what that is unless you're really into King Arthur. Those are the people who help uh, the David and the Goliath. Those are the people who will help. Uh, Miraz and the and the High King, um, 
you know, the, you have a bear that does that, that wants to help. And of course you got Reepicheep that wants to help. You're gonna really get to know Reepicheep well uh, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And you'll see why for a lot of us, Reepicheep is our favorite character. Uh, but you'll see that in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But um, the High King, you know, talks Reepicheep out of it, tells Reepicheep it, Reepicheep it may not be fair to Miraz if, if, if Reepicheep is, is involved in it. Anyway, so they're making preparations for the hand-to-hand combat. That's chapter 13. In chapter 14, which is a very interesting chapter from a literary point of view, in chapter 14, entitled How All Were Very Busy, you really have two stories taking place, right? Uh, you have two stories taking place. You have the battle between Miraz and Peter that's happening. Uh, at first, it looks like Miraz is winning. Then it looks like um, um, High King Peter is winning. Um, but then what, what's going to, and then what happens is they begin fighting each other, the people, the nations, uh, the new Narnians and the old Narnians, uh, the uh, occupiers, the Telmarines, and the old Narnians begin fighting each other. And you notice that's when Glazelle uh, stabs Miraz, a sort of a Julius Caesar going on thing going on here with Brutus, uh, gets stabbed. Um, the other story that's going on simultaneously is Ara- um, uh, Aslan and uh, Lucy and Susan are making their way uh, to, to, to where the new Narnians are. And as they're making their way, they are collecting Narnians, uh, the many different kinds of Narnians, the talking animals, uh, the living trees. Uh, they're, they're collecting the Narnians. And you see even uh, Bacchus, Dionysius, pagan gods, water gods, dryads and naiads, that are all among the um, old Narnias because Narnia is very much an enchanted world. One of the things that C.S. Lewis wants to do for us is to help us become re-enchanted, understand that we're in a world that's full of spirits. There's angels, there's demons, there's a reality other than the material reality. Uh, He would have said, he did say, several times, that one of the problems with modernity is um, we've emptied modernity of all of, of, all of the enchantment of, of modernity. Uh, just a, it's just a material world now. And uh, C.S. Lewis frequently went on to say that the division, the division among modern Christians, regardless of what your name is on the front of your church, the division among modern Christians, and this has grown since the day of C.S. Lewis, are those who believe in a supernatural realm and those who don't. Now, sometimes those who don't, don't admit they don't believe in a supernatural realm. They just, by default, don't believe in a supernatural realm. They don't, in reality, believe in a supernatural realm. Uh, They're very, very agnostic about the existence of a supernatural realm. Uh, that's the division that C.S. Lewis saw occurring uh, from about the time of, um, right after the time of um, Jane Austen and Sir Walter Scott, uh, from about 
the, their era to the, his era. That's, that was the division he was watching. And were he alive today, he would say that that division has grown and, and is, is, is on steroids in this world. There are people sitting in churches, they really don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe that the other world's more real than this world. They don't believe in uh, angels, good and bad angels. Uh, they don't believe um, in things like the incarnation of God and God coming to earth in Jesus Christ and working miracles. They basically don't believe in miracles. You know, you, you really would have to slap them in the face with a miracle before they'd believe in miracles. Anyway, C.S. Lewis is trying to convince moderns to re-enchant their world. That's where he would say the medieval world was better than we were. We are so one-dimensional. We are so narrow-minded. Um, that's where he would say that we need to go back and, and just maybe entertain the idea that the old stories are true. Anyway, so you're seeing uh, Aslan, he's um, bringing, bringing to life and bringing out of hiding all of old Narnia, and they're making their way to, um, to where the battle's going on, between Miraz and the high king, Peter, and then between the, the two nations. So look at the very last paragraph of chapter 14. Here is um, the return of Aslan's. Of Aslan. So if you look at the last paragraph on my, in my edition, it's page 204. It says this, And so at last, with leaping and dancing and singing, with music and laughter and roaring and barking and neighing, they all came to the place where Miraz's army stood, flinging down their swords and holding up their hands. And Peter's army, still holding their weapons and breathing hard, stood round them with stern and glad faces. You know, if you know the Bible at all, this has got to bring to mind the return of Christ, the ultimate return of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, there around Megiddo, uh, there in the valley, um, around the mount of, of, of Megiddo, Haramageddon, Mount Megiddo. It's got to bring to mind all of that, the battle between good and evil and how uh, the return of Christ ceases the battle of good and evil and how the return of Christ brings the completion of the kingdom. Um, for the, you adults, that should have jumped out at you here. Here Aslan returns, bringing some with him. Here Aslan returns, bringing some with him. Um, the enemy holds up their hands, and uh, his, his followers, the, the old Narnians, along with uh, Caspian, and along with Peter and Edmund, um, they are worn out from their fighting. They're worn out from their warfare. Um, they stood there with stern and glad faces as Aslan shows up. And the first thing that happened, the paragraph ends, this is beautiful. And the first thing that happened was the old woman slipped off. And I bet up to this point you didn't know who the old woman was. And the first thing that happened was the old woman slipped, uh, that the old woman slipped off Aslan's back and ran across to Caspian and they embraced one another for she, she was his old nurse. Remember her? The one that got sent away from Mir by Miraz because she was 
secretly telling him stories, the old stories of the Narnian reality. Got, you know, so you encountered her being sent away at the beginning. Well, now um, they, they are united. Um, at the return of Christ, there will be a great reunion. That should feel familiar to you. Anyway, so everyone's together. Everyone's together. And we come to the, um, I guess, the climax of the book, chapter 15. Aslan makes a door in the air. So, uh, start, start on uh, the first paragraph of chapter 15. At the sight of Aslan, the cheeks of the Telmarine soldiers became the color of cold gravy. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I'm, I'm assuming it's not good. The cheeks of the Telmarine soldiers become the color of cold gravy. Hope your imagination is improving as you read these books. Uh, the cheeks of the Telmarine soldiers became the color of cold gravies. gravy. Their knees knocked together and many fell on their faces. Evil's been defeated. They had not believed in lines, and this made their fear even greater. Yeah, this world that showed up is not a world they even thought existed. Even the red dwarfs who, who knew that he came as a friend stood with open mouths and could not speak. Hope you know awe and reverence in the presence of Aslan. Some of the black dwarfs who had been in Nickabrick's party began to edge away. They're getting further and further away. They, they were part of the, of the evil regime. But all the talking beasts surged around the line with purrs and grunts and squeaks and whinnies of delight, fawning on him with their tails, rubbing against him, touching him reverently with their noses, and going to and fro under his body and between his legs. Those who know him are glad to receive him. If you have ever seen a little cat loving a big dog whom it knows and trusts, you will have a pretty good picture of their behavior. Then Peter, leading Caspian, forced his way through the crowd of animals. And here's one of the most famous passages from the book. This is Caspian, sir, he said. And Caspian knelt and kissed the lion's paw. Welcome, Prince, said Aslan. Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? I, I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. Remember, he's still a little kid. He says, I'm only a kid. Good, says Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. Even Plato said, 300 plus years before Jesus, anyone who wants the office shouldn't have it because they don't have the humility for the office. They're used, when I came into ministry in the Methodist church, I remember Bishop Ken Goodson. Some of you in the room probably know that name because he pastored in High Point back in the 50s before he went on to become a bishop and sent to Alabama in the 60s. And he was in retirement and was being our grandfather at Duke Divinity School when I was there. Bishop Ken Goodson, who taught us more than most of the professors bundled together did at Duke Divinity School. Ken Goodson used to always say, back in his day, anyone who wanted to be bishop would never be elected bishop. Things have changed. 
since then. Um, think back to George Washington, gentleman, a gentleman soldier, a citizen politician who was more than happy to stay at Mount Vernon, who did not want the office of president and was more than happy to return to Mount Vernon when it was over with. Our founding fathers knew Plato well, by the way, uh, and they knew that Plato said in the Republic, uh, anyone who wants the office probably should not have it because they don't have the humility for the office. So that's what you see happening here. You know, had, had Caspian said, sure, I'm ready to be king, Aslan would, Aslan would have said, no, you aren't. No, you aren't. Yeah, humility is a... Humility, by the way, is the chief of all Christian virtues, right? You know that. St. Augustine told us that, but he was just telling us what the Bible taught. Um, humility is the chief of all virtues. Because without humility, you can't receive any of the other Christian virtues. And by the way, I'll let you connect dots at this point. The chief of all Christian sins for the last 2,000 years, particularly thanks to Augustine, has been pride. Just let that sink in for a moment. Pride, chief of all Christian sins. Notice how the word pride gets used in our culture. Humility, the chief of all Christian virtues. Anyway, Caspian's right. He's prepared here. He's, he, he, should, he can be king. Anyway, so Aslan says, good. If you had felt yourself sufficient, uh, it would have been a proof that you were not. Well, then, of course, here comes the mice carrying what could almost appear to be a dead reaper cheap. Um, Lucy gets her magic bottle of healing ointment and begins um, healing reaper cheap and he kind of bounces back to life. Um, you notice he says, Hail Aslan, um, came his shrill voice. I have the honor, but then he suddenly stopped. The fact was, this text says, he, has, he still has no what? Has no tail. Has no tail. You see Pauline Bain's um, illustration there. He kind of looks behind him and his tail's still got, gone. Uh, you may not have known that the tail is kind of like the chief, on, chief honor of, of a mouse. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says, a tail is the honor and the glory of a mouse. And that's when Aslan says to him, I have sometimes wondered, friend, whether you do not think too much about your honor. And then uh, I think the assumption is there that um, Aslan's not going to do anything about his tail. But then what do all the other mice say? They will cut off their tails. If, if Reba Cheap has to live without one, they'll cut off their tails. So at that point, um, Aslan roars, Ah, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Reba Cheap, but for the love that is between you and your people. And still more for the kindness your people showed me long ago when you ate away the cords that bound me on the stone table. Remember that, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe? And it was then, though you have long forgotten it, that you began to be talking mice. 
you shall have your tail again. So, new tail appears. And uh, Reap a Cheap is, um, is, uh, is honored. Anyway, the story goes on. Here, here are the tail marine soldiers uh, who have been defeated. Um, some of them were taken across the ford, and they're under lock and key in the town of Baruna. And uh, here, here comes Lucy sitting close to Aslan. And the trees are dancing. And it's a beautiful picture, page 210 at the bottom. It's a beautiful picture as these dancing living trees begin to tear off pieces of themselves. And they start a bonfire. They sacrifice of themselves. They give of themselves. And they build a bonfire. And uh, here come the pagan gods, Bacchus and Salinas and the uh, Maenads. They begin to dance. They're part of this great feast that's going to occur. But notice these pagan gods are worshiping, bowing down before Aslan. So um, here comes the, the party. You notice all the great wine because Bacchus or Dionysus is there. Now again, as mature Christians, you know the Bible. You know that in Revelation um, 19... Uh, part of the eternal kingdom is referred to as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Throughout the Bible, in the Gospels, uh, you see Jesus eating meals over and over again. There's a reason why the Holy Communion, Eucharist, is the highest point of worship in the Christian community, sharing a meal today with Jesus. That's the reason why in the book of Acts, you see that the Christian church in the book of Acts celebrated communion at least weekly, not just ever so often, um, because celebrating communion makes real the presence of Jesus. He becomes known to us again in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. Uh, the, the sharing of the meal is um, a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. It's a foretaste of the Supper of the Lamb. We are practicing for eternity. So again, when you see this feasting going on after the return of Aslan, uh, uh, you get it, you get it. Uh, I love the part where the trees even feast. What do they eat? Dirt. That makes sense for trees, they eat dirt. It is such rich dirt, it looks like what? Chocolate. Edmund, now you remember Edmund, who has become so much better in this book than he was in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What was the downfall? What did the white witch use to captivate Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Turkish Delight. Believe it or not, somebody gave me a box of Turkish Delight Sunday morning after worship. They didn't like it. They knew I didn't like it, but they figured I might as well have it. Um, so here's Edmund, much, much, much better, but still evidently he's, he's got an issue with food. So he tries to eat it, uh, and, and C.S. Lewis, in, in good British understatement, just says uh, he did not find it at all nice. Well, it's dirt. The trees liked it. Anyway, as in feast with all the Narnians. So the next days, the next day, messengers, chiefly squirrels and birds, 
um, went all over the area. They um, made a proclamation to all the scattered Telmarines, those that had been captured and those that ran away, um, and, and, and all the Narnians, and he gathered them together, and he makes a, um, he, he, he's going to make a, a, a door. Remember Jesus said, I am the door? One of his I am statements in John's gospel. Uh, Aslan's going to make a door, and um, you're going to see what's going to happen with the door, but you get a little bit of the backstory at this point where the Telmarines came from. So, what world did the Telmarines come from, the evil Telmarines? What world did they come from? Ours. They came from Earth. Uh, they were, what were they in this world? Pirates. And they got, their ancestors got um, stranded on the Pacific Island. They found one of those thin places. They found one of those places, kind of like the wardrobe, where they could enter Narnia. Um, so the Telmarines, now we know why they're so bad. Their ancestors were earth people, were pirates. That's why they're so bad. That's why they came in and they conquered, they took over Narnia, and they ruled for over a thousand years in Narnia. Um, when they come in, they, they, they come to the land of Telmar in, in Narnia, and that's where they start out, and then they conquer all of Narnia, or at least a big section of Narnia. And, um, yeah, you know now why they were so, why they were so bad. You know now why they were so bad. At this point, Caspian learns uh, of his lineage. Because remember, Caspian's a Telmarine. He was the true ruler of the Telmarines, had Miraz not usurped the throne. He is the true ruler. Here's a beautiful theological passage. When, when, um, when Caspian learns he's an earth person, son of Adam, a human from this world, he, he's, he, he says, I was wishing that I came of a more honorable lineage. Yeah, we human beings all wish this, don't we? We wish we came of a more honorable lineage. And then look at what um, Aslan says. He's doing serious theology here. Again, don't mess the story up for the children when you read it to them. Just read it. But you know what Aslan's saying here at this point. Uh, when when, when Caspian says, I, I was wishing that I came of a more honorable lineage, Aslan says, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan. And that is, watch this, that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth, be content. You know, one of the biggest issues, I think, in the Christian community today is modern Christians don't have a biblical view of human nature. They just see us as created in the image of God, which is true, Genesis 1 and 2. They see that as a result of being created in the image of God, we bear the image of God. All that's true. Uh, that's honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar. But you got to know the rest of the story. Um, we are... We were created good, but then Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible and the rest of human history happens, and we are fallen. This coming week, I'm doing a sermon on, uh, we're doing some text, key text out Romans. I'm doing that wonderful text in, in, in Romans 7 where Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, the good I want to do, I, I don't seem to be able to do. 
The bad that I don't want to do, that's what I seem to be doing. You know, he paints a powerful picture at the end of Romans chapter 7 of the human condition, which you've got to understand before Romans 8 makes any sense to you. Until you understand that we are in desperate need of redemption. Yeah, the whole Christian story, all of Christian theology make no, makes no sense to you. If you think human nature is wonderful and amazing and a blank slate that you can just educate it to perfection and that um, human, human nature just needs to be strengthened and affirmed, let's give everybody a trophy and give everybody a terrific kids award and then everything will be okay. Well, you've really missed the point of the Christian faith. And Aslan obviously knows the Christian faith. You know, here's Caspian a little, a little let down by his lineage. And he's, but Aslan says, you come of Lord Adam and Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth, be content. And then Caspian bows. Now that he knows his identity, he accepts his identity. I, I say a lot of Christians in this culture, they just want to be affirmed. They don't want to be told they need Jesus. They just want to be affirmed. They don't want to be told they're going to hell without Jesus. They just want to be affirmed and celebrated. They don't want to be told that they're part of Adam's line and, and sin is our human condition now that needs to be redeemed. Um, like we say in theological circles, what has almost destroyed the church in the West is we want a theology of creation without a theology of redemption. Yeah, but you got two chapters about creation and the rest of the Bible all the way through Revelation 21, that's the story of redemption. And then the last chapter, chapter 22, you see paradise regained in the Bible but yeah, if you think human nature just needs to be celebrated and affirmed, well, I'm out of work. Um, you know, my wife's a hospice nurse. We used to joke that as long as people sin and die, she and I have job security. <laughs> well, I'm about to lose job security because humans don't know they sin anymore. You know, they just, I'm okay, you're okay. Celebrate me. I was born this way. Which is, which is not an excuse for anything for human beings to say, I was born this way. Yeah, I was born this way. That's why I baptize infants in the historic tradition. And I've always said, you shouldn't bring me those adorable, wonderful little creatures. You shouldn't bring them to me dressed in white, dress them in black. Those little creatures need Jesus. And we're so grateful that God has provided for them in Jesus. And that's why from birth... The historic church says they need Jesus. They're not sweet and innocent for the first seven years of their life, and then we're worried about their relationship to Jesus. They need to acknowledge at some point, and I know some 50-year-old and 90-year-olds that have not yet acknowledged they need Jesus. But hopefully, we know when they come into the world they need Jesus. Hopefully, real soon, they come to understand they need Jesus. That's their profession of faith. That's when hopefully they understand that everything that the church said way back then about them and God is true. While we were yet sinners and we couldn't care less, Christ died for us. So you've got to understand human nature. If you don't have 
what we theologically call a Christian anthropology, a Christian view of human nature, the whole theological world of Christianity crumbles. Jesus just becomes a model to emulate. Well, Socrates died with more grace than Jesus did. I mean, he just drank the hemlock and was very calm about the whole thing. If you just need a model, well, you've missed the whole point of Jesus. You don't just need a model, you need a redeemer. You need somebody who can save you. You don't need to be renovated, you need to be born again. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. And for 2,000 years we've known it. Most Christians around the world today still knows that. But, um, you know, here in the West, we are heirs of Sigmund Freud. Guilt is pathological. Guilt is bad. Guilt is because your, you, your mom and dad didn't raise you right. You need to get over guilt. Well, that just sort of torpedoes the Christian faith, too. You need to understand human nature. Honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar. You are someone for whom Christ died. You would not look at any human being today that Christ didn't die for. That's why we should receive every human being as we receive Christ. But we've got to hold that balance together. That is a human being for whom Christ died, but that is a human being for whom Christ needed to die. And we have such a hard time. John Wesley said, I'm told, we're told, I've never seen it in print. I still, I keep asking people to find it and send it to me. He wrote a lot of stuff, so I'm, until you prove me otherwise, I'm going to say John Wesley said this. John Wesley said, humans would much rather run from east to west than stop in the middle. And he certainly, in all of his theology, he was that way. J John Wesley was a both and kind of theologian. Both you're created in the image of God, and you're, in, you're fallen in need of redemption. Watch out for the lack of balance that, that Americans have. We, we have lack of balance in so many ways. We're an addictive, obsessive culture. So we've gone way, way overboard on human nature being need to be affirmed. Your choices need to be celebrated. However you're born, however you're born is okay. Somehow the way you were born justifies excuses something. You know, I actually had somebody again in my presence yesterday told one of my little granddaughters. We went. I'm, I'm trying to be a really good grandfather. I went and sat on the ground in the grass in the hot, muggy air last night for an hour with three million other people and watched fireworks out at, um, out at Oak Hollow Lake. But in my presence, somebody said to one of my granddaughters, just follow your bliss. And my brain, my wife just looked at me and smiled, knew I'd have enough sense to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, don't follow your bliss. You know, your bliss will get you in trouble. And actually, my granddaughter was doing something that was fine for a one-year-old. I don't want her to follow that bliss and be doing it when she's 10 or 20 or 30. Yeah, be careful about following your bliss. The way you're born is not something to celebrate. Now, we all love children, and my children are, and my grandchildren are better than yours. <laughs> but it's a great equalizer that we all need Jesus. 
You know, we can't pray a prayer of confession and think secretly, well, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession, but I'm better than the rest of you. I just need, you know, about a quart of Jesus. You need a gallon of Jesus. You can't do theology that way. You really can't. Anyway, C.S. Lewis knew that. He's trying to help you teach your children that way. So he draws the picture of a door, and he says you can go through it. You tell Marines can go back home. Um, You can go back where you came from. Some choose to go. Some choose to not go. They don't trust Aslan because they don't know. They know he's not a tame lion. They don't know he's a good lion like the Narnians, like we know. So they're a little hesitant to walk through the door. Who says, I'll go through it? Peter. Peter says he'll go through it. Peter decided it's time for him, it's time for them, the four provincial children, to go back home. So Peter goes through it. Tell Marines to go through it. You see that amazing picture on page 220, uh, Pauline Bain sketch. You know, it's a door, and if you're just looking through it, you see the other side of the door. It's not really a door. It's three sticks. But you notice the Telmarine, when he walks through the door, he disappears. It's a mystical, magical door. Well, they're coming back to this world. So, of course, um, the children side, they, they, they're, they're going to do it too. Notice what Aslan says to the children as they're leaving, almost second to the last page. Um, anyway, notice Lucy said, um, Aslan, I saw that you were talking to Peter, and or, or actually she, she's talking to Peter, but she noticed that Peter had been talking, Peter and Susan had been talking to Aslan earlier. Um, was that what Aslan was talking to you and Susan about this morning? Because they're deciding it's all going, they're going home now. Yes, that and other things, said Peter, his face very solemn. You know, if this was all I knew about the Chronicles of Narnia, this would be a really sad passage for me. But I know the rest of the Chronicles. Um, yes, that and other things, said Peter, his face very solemn. I can't tell it to you all. I can't tell it to you all. There were things he wanted to say to Sue and me because we're not coming back to Narnia. Never, cried Edmund and Lucy in dismay. Oh, you, you two are, answered Peter at least. At least from what he said, I'm pretty sure he means you to get back someday. But not Sue and me, he says. We're getting too old. Oh, Peter, said Lucy, what awful bad luck. Can you bear it? You know, the last time they came, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, and they helped win the first battle of deliverance for Baruna, they got to stay around for many years and rule and reign as high kings and high queens. And now they do the same thing in the second battle of Baruna. They bring deliverance to Narnia and... They don't get to enjoy it. They they go home, and uh, Susan and 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 uh, Peter are told they're not coming back because they're getting too old. Of course, Lucy is all upset. Well, um, you know when when Lucy says, "Can you bear it?" Well, I think I can," said Peter. It's all rather different from what I thought. You'll understand when it comes to your last time. But quick, here are our things. I hope you understand in the spiritual life. And by the way. As we start turning toward the voyage of the Dawn Treader, while this book, according to C.S. Lewis, is all about the restoration of the true faith after a fall, uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader is all about the spiritual life. I hope that you've learned, some of you are older than I am in this room, some of you are younger, I hope you've learned by this point in your life that 
that the spiritual life is all about a life of seasons. Every season is different. I hope you've learned by this point in your life, and people who don't are, are not happy people, hope that you've learned at this point in your life the spiritual life, your journey through this life, is all about letting go. It's all about accepting loss. You do know that, right? Shake your head, yes. You're going to lose your health. You're going to lose your mental capacity. You're going to lose some of the people in your life. You're going to lose... Life is a series of losses. That's what life is about. Every season is different. Um, that's why if you want to be happy in life, you had better learn how to define happiness differently in each season of life. If you get to be 90 years old with the same definition for happiness that you had when you were 20, you will be miserable. I remember watching my father in the retirement community. He, he lived, he was a great man, fourth grade education, grew up in the mountains of West North Carolina, had a lot of wisdom, um, went to Second World War, lived to be 96, worked full-time till he was 91. But the reason he was able to be happy to the end was he, he had learned how to let go. He had learned how every season of life is different. In other words, by the time he ended life, the only thing it took to make him happy was um, a few doctor's visits a month or a week, a few doctor's visits, the people there in the retirement home, a few folks that show up to see him occasionally, and watching Fox News all day long. Now, even at the age I was when he died four years ago, I'm like, just take me out in the backyard and shoot me now. <laughs> if that, but my father throughout, and my father lost his wife, my mother, 20 years before. I, I watched him lose his spouse, his health. He reinvented himself three times and, and retired three different times and let go of jobs. Yeah. Life is all about moving on, trusting God enough in the new season, letting go of stuff that you have to let go of to get into the new season. Um, yeah, sitting there watching the fireworks last night with my grandkids and my kids, the worst part of it was when it was over, I'd sit there so long I needed my kids to help me get up. I'm thinking, why in God's name did I not bring a chair? But there for an hour and a half on a blanket on the ground, that's life. And if you haven't figured that out yet, you're not going to be able to walk through the door. You're going to be miserable until you get to the door. You know, here's Susan and... Peter being told they're not coming back. Remember, you already heard Asa say he never does the same thing twice. There's no repeats. There's no do-overs. There's just moving on. Anyway, um, and that's why in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the, the, the whole story is a journey. 
because the spiritual life's a journey. Now, some of you don't journey well. Some of you are not a pilgrim, you're a settler. You circle the wagons and try to hold on till Jesus comes. We're called to journey, we're called to be pilgrims. We're passing through. That's why you have so many, whether it's Pilgrim's Progress or the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, spiritual life is all about journeying. Anyway, so um, here are Peter and Edmund and Lucy and, and um, Susan. They go through the door and they, they, they bring their old stuff, their old clothes, and they find themselves back on the railroad, back on the platform at the railroad station from which they had been sucked into Narnia at the beginning of the book. That's the last picture you see there. And what's the last sentence? Well, the last couple sentences. Well, said Peter, we have had a time. Well, they have. And Peter's smart enough to not grieve the fact that it's over, but to celebrate the fact that it happened. Well, said Peter, we have had a time. Notice the last sentence. Bother, said Edmund. I've left my new torch in Narnia. By the way, a torch in England is what? Flashlight. I've left my new torch, my flashlight in Narnia. So what does that mean for Edmund? He's got to go back. Edmund and, Sue, Edmund and Lucy go back in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So let me say a word about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, I love Prince Caspian, the book, more than I did. But it's still my least favorite of all the Chronicles of Narnia. It, for lots of reasons. It's, it's wonderful. It's still much more wonderful than probably what else you're reading these days. But um, it's my least favorite of the seven Chronicles. Um, my most favorite, I think, is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he wrote, T.S. Lewis wrote, it, came, it was published in 1952. It starts out, if you've started it, it starts out with... Um, with Edmund and Lucy visiting their cousin, their cousin, one of the most fascinating characters, Eustace Clarence Scrub, which allows for one of the greatest opening sentences in all of literature. If you're not aware of it, it's the opening sentence of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> well, as you get to know Eustace, you'll know that he did. Uh, just like Edmund changed some in Prince Caspian, um, Eustace Clarence Scrub is going to change a lot in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He is an absolutely terrible child to start with. Absolutely terrible. Anyway, Lucy and Edmund are visiting with their cousin Clarence. They see a painting of a ship. Uh, they say, oh, that looks like a Narnian ship. All of a sudden, the painting comes alive and sucks them back into Narnia, those three back into Narnia. And they find themselves in the water there by the ship. The ship is called the Dawn Treader. That's why it's called the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Dawn Treader is the ship. Uh, Caspian now is ruling, so they bring him aboard the ship. They bring them aboard the ship, and you get to learn just how miserable a child Eustace, Eustace was, Eustace Clarence Scrub, an amazing character. There are amazing characters in this book. It's just a journey. They're journeying east. 
You do know historically all churches were built facing east. Shake your head yes on that. I keep meaning to walk into our sanctuary with a compass and see if our sanctuary faces east. Part of the reason I haven't done it is I don't want you to prove to me it doesn't face east. Uh, we always build our churches facing east. East, If you go east from our world, the European world, the American world, the English east will take you where? Not the far east, but the near east will take you where? Jerusalem. Holy Land. There's a reason why, you know, I was in the ministry for five years before I finally asked a funeral director, why do you always tell me which end the head is in the casket at the graveside? They never told me in seminary you always have, they always put the, the casket faced in a certain way, and you've got to stand at the end of the casket where the head is. They never told me that in seminary. But every time, every time I went to do funerals, Funeral director just whispered to me and said, the head's on that end. Finally, after about 10 or 20 years, I said, why are you telling me this? <laughs> well, you face, historically, you bury to where in the resurrection you stand and you're facing east. Anyway, the voyage of the dawn treader is heading east. Uh, so you know where they're going to go to. I don't even have to tell you. But in route, they're going to go through some amazing places. The Lone Islands, the Dragon Island, where you're going to get one of my favorite stories, the undragoning of Eustace. You're going to encounter a sea serpent. You're going to go to Goldwater Island, the Island of the Voices, where you meet the duffel puds. Um, absolutely amazing creatures. The Dark Island, a place of such terror that C.S. Lewis almost took it out. He was afraid that the Dark Island would be too terrifying for children, but he left it in because they need to know about the Dark Island. It's the place where all your dreams come true, but you get there and what you find out is it's your nightmares that comes true. That's the Dark Island. Uh, Ramandu's Island, where you find Aslan's Table. And then you'll get to the world's end, which again, going east, get to the world's end, get to the place Reap a Cheap wants to go. So when C.S. Lewis said what this book was about, it is about the spiritual journey, especially as is presented in Reap a Cheap. So pay attention to Reap a Cheap. So anyway... Um, I get three extra minutes next week. So go in peace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the ways that you grow us up. We thank you for the ways that you teach us. We thank you for the ways that you, you bother us and interfere with us and interrupt our lives and invade our lives because you want us to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the happiness that we experience here in this world, but God, we are quick to acknowledge you are more concerned about our holiness than you are our happiness. So we thank you for that intolerable compliment that you pay us by refusing to leave us alone. Keep us journeying until that day when we find ourselves at world's end and we find ourselves in Aslan's land. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.